Weekly Signals every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Well, we have a wonderful guest tonight on Privacy Piracy. We are going to be talking to the Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. And I'm so pleased that Jim Harper is going to be joining us. As Director of Information Policy Studies, Jim focuses on the difficult problems of adapting law and policy to the unique problems of the information age. And we have talked about privacy in the information age and how it really does pose many new problems. Jim is a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. His work has been cited by USA Today, the Associated Press, and Reuters. He has appeared on Fox News Channel, CBS, and MSNBC, and many other media places, and his scholarly articles have appeared in Administrative Law Review, the Minnesota Law Review, and the Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly. Recently, Jim Harper wrote the book, which I just finished, and it's sitting right here in front of me, Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. Jim is the editor of Privacilla.org, a web-based think tank devoted exclusively to privacy, and he maintains online federal spending resource, WashingtonWatch.com. And you can learn lots more about him and the wonderful work that he does at the Cato Institute at Cato.org, O-R-G. Thank you, Jim, for joining us. My pleasure. Well, we sure appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I just finished reading your book, Identity Crisis. Why did you write this book? Well, uh, a few years back, I went and did a Hill briefing uh, here on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., telling members of Congress and their staff that we didn't want to have a national ID. And it occurred to me at that event, though there were a wide variety of groups and people who who were opposed to a national ID, that we didn't have as strong uh, an intellectual foundation to our arguments as I think we needed to carry the day. And so I realized at that point that somebody needed to go write the reasons why we don't want a national ID. And when I went and read all the literature on identification policy and identification theory, I realized there wasn't very much at all. And so I decided I should probably try to capture it, probably try to understand how identification works, and then make policy arguments about whether or not we should have a national ID in the United States. So that's that's what got me started. And since then, there have been many twists and turns in the policy debate about identity that uh, I'm sure we'll get to. Right. And we talk a lot on this show about identity theft, and that is totally increasing. We're talking about a 22% increase in 2008. So identity, somehow we do need to define identity. So tell us, how is identification changing in the information age? Well, one of the most important changes, and this is not just a change for identification, 
is digitization. So we used to identify people using biometrics, but we just did it using analog biometrics. That is, we used the eyes in our head to take the measure of people's faces and the way they walk and things like that, and, and so we could recognize them the second time we saw them. Well, now we're starting to do that by machine with fingerprint readers and iris scan readers and so on and so forth. And the, the, the difference is that, that those readers are often, often highly accurate. They also have very, very good memories. They never forget if you program them appropriately. And so being identified in society will be more common, and it will also create longer uh, records of where you've been and what you've done. So, we're, so that's, it's part of an overall change in digitization where information is kept longer, it's copied, it's transferred, it's stored, it's reused, et cetera. Uh, and this is, this is going on, obviously, throughout the digital world. But in identification particularly, that's sort of the most important place because if you're not identified, this data about you isn't collected. Right, right. And, and that kind of leads to the whole issue of surveillance. You, you talk in the book about how modern identification systems and techniques are expanding the use of surveillance and increasing the, the use of these dossiers, like you said, that, that, that never go away. Um, ex- explain what you mean by that. And what about the benefits and burdens and of this surveillance? Yeah, well, the starting point is to understand that surveillance is not, is not always bad. It's just a neutral term that in French means looking over or overseeing. And sometimes we want and appreciate surveillance. Uh, we, we want law enforcement to be on the street looking around to make sure that nothing bad is happening in our neighborhood. That's good surveillance. We want uh, public health authorities to be watching over the society to see if there's some kind of disease outbreak that they can, that they can react to and, and protect us. Um, the other side of surveillance, of course, is when um, we have to trade information in order to interact in society or when surveillance is too deep and too personal. So facial recognition, for example, is a, is a technology that's up and coming. I'm not sure if it's quite ready for prime time, but it's getting better and better with advances in technology. Before too long, facial recognition technology uh, used with cameras on public streets will enable the owners of these cameras and the databases associated with them to track where we have gone in, in cities, saying Jim Harper, oh, he left his office at 2 p.m., and he does this every week at 2 p.m. on Mondays, and he goes over to this psychologist's office. And that's going to reveal something about me that I might prefer to have private. But, uh, but again, the technology, the change in digitization means that surveillance can harm us much more than it did in the past. So we have to have affirmative policies about what information we collect and how long we keep it. You know, Jim, that's the thing that always worries me. We have this wonderful technology, all this digitalization, the radio frequency identifies, all these great things which in and of themselves are not bad, but how they can be used could be so bad and, and how that the uh, the laws and the policies cannot possibly keep up with this technology. And that's what the thing that always worries me, and, and we've worried about even in the state of California when we started some RFID legislation to say that, you know, radio frequency identifiers couldn't be put into our driver's license until there was more, you know, um, technology that would protect those. So isn't that a big concern as well, that, the, that like you're talking about, the policy and the legislation doesn't keep up with what could happen? Yeah, it, it is a big concern. And I, I don't know if, if, if legislation and policy will ever actually protect privacy very well. Uh, you make the point correctly that a lot of these things are pretty good and pretty cool. We adopt devices like, like cell phones and the Internet um, for their good things, but they are also, in a sense, surveillance devices. And so the, the unfortunate irony, I think, is that a lot of privacy is driven or a lot of privacy loss is driven by consumer demand. We want conveniences. We want new gadgets. We want all these wonderful things, but we're not yet aware of the privacy costs we may be paying. So the, the only solution, I think, in the long term is for people to understand better how all these things work. Now, there's a, a broad analogy I make between the online digital world and the old analog world, the, 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 the world we all grew up in. Um, and for generations, for millennia, humans have learned how to protect privacy in the physical world. All of us, we raise our children, we tell them you put your clothes on, you keep your clothes on all day, and that, among other things, protects privacy. And so people know very well that when they want to have privacy in the appearance of their bodies, they put on clothes. When they want to have privacy in the 
words coming out of their mouths, they lower their voices or they move to another room where other people aren't, so on and so forth. But with technology, we don't yet know all those basic lessons. So we go online and we don't know that a third-party marketer is also on the website that we're looking at, and they're seeing the IP address we're using, and they're able to maybe track our movements across the web. We don't realize that cameras are picking up uh, images that may actually be used to track us. We don't realize that an RFID tag in a door card key or, or maybe in a, a driver's license could be used to figure out who we are from 20 or 30 feet away. So over time, and unfortunately it will take some time, for us to learn how these things work and then learn how to protect our privacy from them. And isn't this really what you're talking about is transparency? Like when you're talking about, well, you know, you it's pretty transparent that you should put on your clothes. You know, I mean, it's 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 real concrete. We can tell we can talk about that kind of privacy. And do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy if you close your doors and close your windows? That used to be what that we could understand what what privacy was. But now there are so many things that really aren't transparent. Like you said, if you're, you know, that you don't realize that if you've got some kind of a, a document, an identity document in your wallet that can be read from 20 feet away or something, that's not real transparent to you. How can we really, even if we understand it, if it isn't really transparent to us? Well, I mean, that is a struggle. Now, now to, to continue this analogy between you know, raising our children to understand privacy in the real world and raising ourselves to under, understand privacy in the online world, um, there isn't any notice that if you walk on a street naked, people will see it. There really isn't notice that if you, if you leave private papers on a park bench, someone might pick them up and read them. And so, so I'm a little bit skeptical of, of requiring transparency or forcing transparency because it's very hard to get people to know things that we want them to know. We all want them to have privacy. We all, all want people to know the things they need to know, but it's very hard to get them to know that stuff. And so I think it'll probably end up being generational. Kids today, when they raise their children, will have enough lessons that they'll say, okay, when you're using Facebook, you want to do this. When you're using this social network, you want to do that. When you're on your cell phone, you've got to know about all these consequences from how you use information. So it's... it's um, I don't think that there there is a transparency problem in the sense that most people don't understand what's going on, but I don't know exactly how to fix it other than time and experience in the whole society. Well, Jim, here you are. You're up by the hill. I mean, you're in Washington. You know, this is where all this stuff comes from in terms of what what policy is really made, what legislation is being made. Um, is there ever a chance for for people like me as a consumer and all the other consumers who might be listening to this that even if we do know, even if we do know we, we have to watch ourselves on the, uh, you know, social networking sites, um, isn't there a lot that we don't know? Isn't there, shouldn't there be some kind of legislation that there must be really adequate notice out there? Like if you click this button, you know, you, or, or maybe it should be kind of opt-in like the Europeans have, like, you know, we won't share this information. We won't collect this information unless you check this box that says that we can. I mean, should that happen? Well, notice is an interesting thing because I think a lot of a lot of smart people like us, people who work on these problems all the time, would really like to see notices because then we would get to read them, you and I. But average consumers, I think the numbers show that, that ordinary consumers really don't read privacy policies. And sometimes they'll take the existence of a privacy policy to indicate that their privacy is protected, when in fact the privacy policy may say something like, we really protect your privacy, but by the way, we're going to do anything with the information you give us that we want to do. And so, so I'm, I'm just, I'm, and I'm sort of a, a minority on this. A lot of people just believe, oh, privacy notices, let's get that done and, and things will be all right. But I really think we need to figure out how people, uh, how people digest this information and and I don't think it's through this intellectual process of reading privacy notices. They learn lessons. They see things in the newspaper. They, they hear stories from friends. And that's not a very good way, but I think it's as good or maybe better than official privacy notices. Well, and, even, even if we don't have privacy notices that everybody's reading, and I know what you mean, that you're absolutely 100% right on, it's, 
it is a lot for people to read. And plus, when we're on the Internet, we're in such a hurry that we're not even looking at those. I mean, I'm I can be just as guilty as not looking at every privacy policy that that comes up because it's it's a pain in the butt to do it. But what I'm thinking is like where you have something that that right there in front of somebody when they're about to 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 take some action on that website that or even when they visit that website is that a little button comes up and says we won't collect any information unless you push this button or unless you put this little x here um that's what i'm saying is is should we be paternalistic and protect people because they don't read these privacy notices or because they don't have a clue of what's going on or because they don't know the ramifications. I mean, should we just make that opt in if you want us to, to surveil you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I do. And, and, it, and it would be great to, to bring people through um, a, a thoughtful process each time they went to a new website. But you would find that people would, because they really just want what they want, and don't know enough about privacy to want it, I think, is the, is the deeper problem, that they would just click on that button every single time. It would be in their way. And you'd, you'd, you'd get a lot of pushback um, from the consuming public saying, why am I getting all these pop-ups? How do I disable these gosh darn pop-ups? Um, moving to opt-out is another question, of course, or rather moving to opt-in is another question, saying no information can be collected unless somebody affirmatively agrees to it. Um, and that proposal is... is it's a good one for privacy, but it may not be a good one for consumers overall because a lot of the online content that we enjoy so much is funded by advertising. Right. And one of the things that makes the advertising so valuable is because there is some tracking. And if you take, if you take that away, you take that tracking, you're going to lose some of the funding for this content. And so you might give people privacy that they don't necessarily want and take away content that they do want. And so I think, and you know, I've, I've, I think it's important to get the balance right that consumers ultimately should decide for themselves. There's lots of tracking online that is done that is ultimately harmless to the consumer. It doesn't hurt me. It's, it, people are entitled to their own opinions, of course. It doesn't hurt me if an advertising network can see that I'm a person who's interested in soccer and I happen to be a soccer fan. And if they want to serve me an ad about soccer... That doesn't affect me. That doesn't harm me. Um, it's just happening. Other people are offended by that, and they, they are entitled to that. I'm, of course, most concerned when information about me is transferred to the government, who might have the power to coerce me to do something or not do something. So the values at stake here um, are important, and I, and I would resist taking away consumers' role in this by, by switching us to an opt-in um, they would skip right past it and, and, and wonder over years why the same content wasn't available that we have now. Well, but, you know, and the other side of the coin is if there's a quid pro quo, you know, I mean, if I opt in and I'm going to get something out of it, for example, I like it when I visit Amazon.com and they tell me about the new privacy books. <laughs> you know, I like that. And, and that one I would opt into. So if there's something that's in it for me that I can exchange, I'm, I might be happy about it. But let's, let's kind of switch gears and make sure that everybody knows who I'm speaking to, this wonderful privacy expert. I am speaking with Jim Harper, who is Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. And you can find out more about him and the Cato Institute at Cato, that's C-A-T-O dot org. Let's get back to your book because I think it has so many really interesting things and I love some of the little stories you have in here. We're talking about Jim's book called Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. And this whole issue of identity is more and more of a problem for so many different companies and governmental agencies. We have just, you know, the, the red flag rules have become effective and they say that companies that have uh, sensitive information about you really need to authenticate and verify who you are. So let's talk about this identification in our society and what is verification and authentication? What, what is all that about? Well, one of, the, one of the interesting problems in this area is that the language people use to describe these processes is very different. And a lot of the technology people refer to authentication uh, and author authorization and things like that. 
and I have a, diff- a little bit different way of, of talking about how identification is used in society. Uh, I, I, I do believe in authorization, and every transaction requires some level of authorization. And I mean every transaction from, from uh, buying a candy bar to getting on a bus and, and et cetera, et cetera. What are the things needed to make this process go forward? Well, in the case of buying a candy bar, it's presentation of the money that it takes to buy that candy bar. In terms of buying a beer, it's presentation of the money and proof that you're old enough to buy it. When it's getting, uh, when it's uh, voting, it is residency in a certain district and having reached the age and not being a felon in most in most districts. All these different things are credentials, and that's the way I describe them: is as credentials. Sometimes, and only sometimes, the relevant credential is identity. So when it comes to um, who gets to come into your house, who can write checks on your account, and so on and so forth, then identity is the relevant credential. But so often in our society, we use identity when we could be using the more relevant credential. So we show our driver's license when we're trying to prove our age. And that actually doesn't make sense. We're sharing too much information in that, in that transaction. A lot of people try to organize uh, the society or our transactions around identity rather than around relevant credentials. Authorization, now some people are rather, rather authentication is a, a strange word to me. I think it means checking the provenance or the truth of a document. So when somebody presents a, a driver's license, you look at it to see if it looks like a California driver's license or not. And that, I think, is the authentication step when you check the identifiers or the credential that has been offered. We're pretty far down in the technical weeds here, and and again, the language is confusing, but there's an idea of the kinds of concepts that we're talking about in identification. Well, you talk in your book about what would be more relevant or what would be better, and you talk about multi-factor authentication. And so why don't you share some of your thoughts about how that should be implemented? Well, so, so identification... Figuring out who somebody is and recognizing them the second time you see them is what I'm talking about here. And there are, well, in the the traditional model, there are three kinds of identifiers people use, and I've sort of added a fourth when I was researching my book. Um, Something you are, something you know, something you have, and I added something you are assigned. So these are different identifiers or different characteristics people have that they use to prove who they are. So we're very familiar with them, but we rarely talk about them. When you look at somebody who you've seen before, your eyes and brain are actually taking the measurement of who you see and comparing them to records you have in your brain of of who you've seen before. And when you recognize the same face again or the same body, the way the person carries themselves, the way they sound, or even the way they smell, you will pull up memories of that person and treat them as the person you know. That's the process of identification. Well, when we move into this online environment, the digital environment, we don't have that that opportunity because we're not actually seeing people. We're not actually in the, in the room with them. And so we have to use other methods and we have to sort of articulate the steps in identifying someone. When we log into a website, they'll typically use username and password. Um, this is something you are assigned, a username. Often you assign it to yourself, though sometimes the website will assign it to you. And then password is something you know. Given this username, does this person know the password that's assi- that's affiliated with it? If they do know it, they take that as sufficient proof that they're seeing someone they've seen before, and they'll give you access to your email account or whatever else the website does. Um, that's an example of multi-factor, although it's a relatively weak example. There are much stronger um, examples like biometrics that are that even even single factor can be very strong. DNA is a single factor identification process, but a lot of banks, the banking industry, is moving to multi-factor because it is safer against identity fraud and other other types of fraud than the old old style identification that they've been doing up to this time. Yeah, I like it when I can set up some questions that only I know the answer, even my husband doesn't know the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and then I don't tell anybody what the answer is. I, I had fun in my book because I invented a, a word for that, epistemetric identification. <laughs> Biometric is when you, you know, actually see a body. Epistemetric is when you look at a, the, the episteme, the, la, the Latin root is for knowledge. You look at the knowledge that the person has, and if they have the correct knowledge, then you regard them as, a, as being the right person to deal with. Right, right. So I, I like it when they ask me a few questions, because I can answer those. And, you know, if I have a password, that's fine, the password, but I want to have my password 
plus what I know, maybe, you know, even better than what I see on the screen. You know, there is something with my bank. They said, always make sure that you, you see this little picture that you picked out. That's right. And th- that's fine. But I like it when I have to answer something. If I can do it quick, I feel better about it because it's something that no one uh, really knows. Yep. You just spoke briefly a few minutes ago about biometrics. And, and let's talk about what biometrics is and really the validity of it, or rather the, the po- false positives and false negatives and all that stuff. Well, biometrics, starting at the beginning with definitions, um, biometrics is literally bio means life, and metric or meter means measurement. So it's the, taking the measurement of a living thing. And so using the, the specific Greek and Latin you know, definition of, of, of the word, we're talking about when, when, you take, when anyone takes the measure of living things. And so we're all very experienced with biometrics. We don't even think about it because when we see other people, when we hear people, um, we're using biometrics to know who they are. Uh, but what most people are talking about when they use the word biometrics is, is machine biometrics or digital biometrics. Um, these are different for, for the reasons I said earlier because um, they capture much more information and keep it much longer. Now, biometrics don't necessarily, many biometrics are very, very good quality, but, but we're never going to have, I don't think, a, a biometric system that is perfect, and that's important to understand. Uh, because there there are questions about fingerprint readers whether they can be compromised by by fraud of a sort where you where you put a fake fingerprint on them um, whether they misread fingerprints from time to time and may allow someone entry where they're not supposed to be or refuse somebody entry who should be allowed allowed past a, a fingerprint reader um, so the issues are quite quite similar to the biometrics we're all familiar with but there will be a lot of change in technology over time with biometrics so that even DNA, for example, about the strongest biometric there is, uh, might be falsified. I just read an article the other day where, where uh, apparently they can create falsified DNA in blood and it's potential, potentially used at a crime scene to incriminate someone who wasn't even there. Um, we'll continue into a, a fascinating future with biometrics. Mm. You know, I, I think about even with biometrics and identity theft, if, if someone goes to apply for a passport and even if they have to use biometrics to, to set this up or like in, in the state of California, you have to give your thumbprint to get a driver's license. And I'm thinking if somebody goes to get a, a passport that used biometrics or a driver's license and it, they set it up for the very first time with their biometrics, right? Your name, but their biometrics, when you go to try and get that driver's license or their passport, then you're going to have a problem because your biometrics are not going to match the biometrics of the person who stole your identity. That's absolutely true, and it's one of the, one of the real problems that I think our society will encounter if we move towards some of these national ID systems that are being proposed. Um, for example, in the, in the immigration debate in, in Washington, D.C., right now, well, in the health insurance debate, too, for that yes, matter, but, yes. but also in the immigration debate, um, they're talking about uh, requiring verification of people's uh, immigration status before they can work or perhaps before they can get health care or health insurance. I'm not sure what the specific proposals are. At any rate, you're likely to see, unfortunately, because of that, you're likely to see that some undocumented workers in the United States who, who today are committing minor identity frauds, that is, they're using an SSN that's not theirs. Um, they may be driven to deepen their identity frauds. And you'll find, unfortunately, among the the Hispanic community, this this, Hispanic surname community, they will be especially victimized. Even legal citizens I'm talking about will be victimized by identity frauds where it's possible for someone to have better documented proof of them being you than you have. And so there's real Kafkaesque type problems where uh, where the system, the, the nationwide system for determining everybody's immigration status, is compromised, and law-abiding American citizens are viewed as um, potential criminals, candidates for deportation when they arrive at the Social Security office or at the Department of Homeland Security trying to prove that they are really them. So I'm very concerned about those programs because uh, they're, they're trying to use national identity systems that, that, that aren't up to the task, frankly, to administer things like access to work, access to health care, access to financial services, and so on. Right, and access to getting governmental documents 
even yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, it was funny when you just brought up about the Hispanic surnames and um, there, there is, I live in California and California, we have a lot of people that come up from South America, Latin America, Mexico, et cetera. And they use the identity of somebody else to work. And um, so I even had a gentleman who was a legalized citizen here in Orange County, California, who found out that somebody in San Diego had used his name and his social and had gotten workers' comp in his name. And when he was injured on the job, and here he, he is a legal citizen, like you said, he was not able to get workers' compensation because somebody else had such great documents that they were supposed to get it instead of him. And when he was badly injured on the job, he couldn't get it. So we had a little bit of a problem with that, trying to prove, no, this is the real person. <laughs> yeah. And there are anecdotes like that from around the country, including where people are suspected of uh, serious crimes. And the, the, uh, there was a case in Florida where, where a, a man was the victim of identity fraud, and his, his uh, doppelganger, his impersonator, was actually suspected of murder. And the police went to his house, guns drawn, took him out of the house. Luckily, he wasn't shot in his house by, by the police, but that's how serious it can get. And that's that that's an important message i think for everybody to realize that these these large uniform identity systems that we're sort of moving toward with some of these national id proposals are not up to the task and we have to reconsider we have to really face these policies um, and, and think through them rather than just backing into them as we've been doing up to now uh, a national id system is probably not up to the task of managing all the information it takes and in fact what we've got right now in our wallets is probably uh, something we want to build on, where you have a lot of different identity systems for different purposes. Your credit card is good for for, in, for financial transactions. You may have a health insurance card that's that's just you know, heavy paper with black printing on it, but it's good enough for that. Um, you have driver's licenses. There's a, a variety of different cards and 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 even even RFID cards for for access to doorways and things like that. It's a diverse system. Each part of it is customized for a different purpose and trying to drive all of these things onto a single license or a single um, national social security card or something like that, that's probably a mistake. But a lot of the public policies in the United States are moving that direction right now. I know. Let's talk about the Real ID Act for those people who really don't understand what you're talking about, that that's, you know that whole push toward the Real ID Act. Why don't you explain that to my audience a little bit? Sure. The Real ID Act is a, is a law that was passed in May of 2005, that called for uh, all states to start issuing driver's licenses consistent with federal standards by May of 2008. Um, this was a nominal product of the 911 Commission, though in, in truth, legislation passed in December of 2004 was meant to carry out 911 Commission instructions. The 911 Commission itself only dedicated about three quarters of a page to identity security out of 400 plus pages. Of, of reporting on the 911 attacks. At any rate, in May of 2005, the, the material that had been passed in December 2004 was stripped out. Real ID Act was put in. Uh, there were no hearings in either the House or Senate. There was no separate vote in the Senate on Real ID. And all of a sudden, states were faced with a three-year mandate to start issuing what I think are national identity cards because they're, they're nationalized. They're, they're, uh, they would have databases, nationally accessible databases of information about drivers. At any rate, a lot of a lot of folks from across the political and ideological spectrum oppose this stuff. I went and spoke in Utah and Idaho, where where some of the most conservative members of their state legislatures were also the most opposed to a national ID law. The ACLU was working just as hard in plenty of other states, arguing that arguing that this was opposed to, to their values and really this sort of trans trans ideological transpartisan um, group helped to convince a lot of states to pass legislation of their own barring participation in the National ID Act, in the, in the, sorry, in the Real ID Act. And, and at present, a dozen states have barred themselves from participating. No state was compliant with Real ID by, uh, by May of 2008. And it looks like with a new deadline, the DHS sort of just pushed back the deadline until December of 2009. It looks like very few states and maybe no states will be in compliance again in the December 2009 deadline comes around. Well, aside from the privacy issues, it's a it's a cost nightmare. And coming from a, a state that 
you know, has absolutely no money and they're doing furloughs at every office that I can think of in the state and they have no money for the University of California and they have their, you know, everybody's cutting back here. I, I don't see how even financially they could do it, can they? I doubt it. The, the original estimate for the cost of implementing Real ID was about $17 billion. That was the cost estimate coming from the Department of Homeland Security itself. Um, those costs, uh, the majority of those costs would fall on state legislatures themselves, about $11 billion of that. $6 billion would be opportunity costs. That's economic talk for people standing in line at DMVs. Oh, $6 billion dollars worth of Americans' time just standing in line searching for documents and that kind of thing. Well, even now here they close like once a week. So <laughs> so you can't even go, and I, I'm going to have to get a new license in December. I'm not looking forward to that. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy. But so what, you know, because there's been such a backlash about Real ID, what what's going to happen, or what do you think should happen? Well, the next, the next step in the national ID fight is around a bill called Pass ID. And the Pass ID... Act was introduced in the Senate earlier this year. Uh, it is designed uh, around Real ID. It looks the same. The structure of the bill is the same. It has some of the corners taken off. So, so some of the worst elements of Real ID have been taken out. Uh, the hope in the Senate is that it's it's taken taken away enough of the objectionable stuff that uh, it can get passed, and that states will go ahead and implement it. I think it's still a national ID. I think many of the costs are hidden, but they're still there. And ultimately, if Pass ID were to were to were to go through Congress, um, states will again be faced with an enormous cost, enormous inconvenience to their people. the The idea of putting all Americans into a national ID system is really contrary to to some basic values. A lot of people don't understand because they think a national ID is for the other guy, as it were. Uh, they don't understand that it, that they're talking about it's their time going down to the Department of Motor Vehicles. It's their time digging up birth records that in many cases are entirely gone and certainly very hard to find. It's their time. It's their time. It's their time. Um, your listeners, each and every one of them, would have to go and get a new driver's license if California were to implement real ID or pass ID or any of these other things. I think there are a lot better ways to secure our identities in this uh, modern era. And they would almost be like smart cards, is that correct? Well, originally... There was some concern that the Real ID Act would require RFID chips, not necessarily a smart card-style computer chip, but a, at least an RFID chip. And I think enough concerns were expressed about that that the Department of Homeland Security only required a 2D barcode. Some some states already have a 2D barcode. I'm not sure if California is one of them, but that would become a national standard. That's concerning because if everybody has a license with the same barcode on it, uh, every government office, every store, every time you use a credit card, they're going to say, hey, let's also scan this ID and get the information off the ID. We'll, call, we'll say it's for security, but we're going to end up using this information for marketing purposes, for every other purpose we can think of. One of the things most concerning to me about this is that many states, and the DHS would have allowed this under the Real ID Act, many states have race in that barcode. And we know from experience throughout history that ID systems are used to divide people up by race, by religion, by national origin status, and so on and so forth. It's a huge error, and I want everybody to know it and think about it, to have a national ID system that includes race and that people can copy digitally and put into databases. We don't want that kind of thing recorded um, in our society. And the whole idea of all these myriad databases profiling us that in itself is is pretty terrifying, and and I. What about the uh, the Privacy Act with regard to these databases? Well, the way the Real ID Act is written is very clever or very uh, um, very evil, depending on your perspective yeah. of things. Or very uh, insidious, huh? It would insidious <laughs> is a good word for it. The, the the states would be implementing, and so the databases that are created by federal mandate would not be subject to the Federal Privacy Act because mm. the states were going to be the ones that were implementing. And I think that was a real serious end run around the, the even modest protections of the, the Federal Privacy Act. So this is another reason, I think, that, that, the, uh, that the Real ID Act is, was um, so concerning to so many people in states across the country 
outright refused it. California is not one of them that was a leader, though I'm sure your, your listeners yeah. would be happy to communicate to anybody <laughs> listening that, uh, that, that that's another state that should uh, not get on board with Real ID. Absolutely. Let's get back to your book. I first want to tell my audience who we're speaking with. We are speaking with a wonderful privacy advocate and privacy expert, and he is also the author of Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. We are speaking with Jim Harper, and Jim is uh, in Washington, D.C. He is the Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He testifies in Congress, and obviously from just listening to him, you can see how brilliant he is and how insightful he is about the concerns about information privacy and what's going on in the information age. Jim, in in your book, you say that identifying people contrary to their needs and wishes erodes their ability to craft their lives as they wish. So, So you're really talking about freedom. Let's talk more about that. I am. It's 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 something we have to think about anew because because the way society works is changing with technology. Again, because we're we're doing so many things online, because we're using cell phones that are digital communicators and so on and so forth. Lots more records about us are being created. It used to be um, that that in the in the old days, it wasn't even that long ago. Um, you could go somewhere, move to a new city, and basically change your life. You could you could start a new, even change your name if you wanted to, but but basically start a new life, and many people did that for many good reasons. Of course, some people did that for bad reasons because they were trying to escape wrongdoing or something like that. But there was a freedom in not being known and not being tracked. And it's important, of course, to while we, while we get the benefits of all these, these new devices and technologies and commerce and so on and so forth, to protect that freedom, that social freedom of being able to say, you know what, this is me, this is a new me. I'm going to act differently around this group of people than I do with that group of people. I'm going to keep my communications and my finances and my health separate from one another so that large organizations, corporations, or governments don't have access to everything about me. There's more freedom for the individual. And I think that's an important thing to be discussing as we, as we adopt all these great technologies is to, to make sure that the technologies work for us and not on us. And, and one of the main ways to do that is to preserve anonymity. Now, I don't know that anonymity is a right. People often say that it is, and it would, it would be neat if it was a right. But, but we at least need to protect people's ability to transact anonymously so that you can post a, a, a comment on a blog without being identified, so that you can speak your mind in the public square and not necessarily be identified. Those kinds of things are all constituent parts of freedom. And that's, that's so important. It's such an essential element of what makes our country great, I think, that we need to think about that. We need to keep working on it and make sure that all our great technologies don't undermine our freedom. There's such a benefit and burden on all of these things when you were talking about this. I was thinking about how all these people were arrested in Iran and, you know, that they went online and they were trying to be anonymous, but somehow they found them, you know, for, for speaking up against the government. Or we hear about that happening in China. Or it could very easily happen here that, you know, People have lost their jobs because of things that they've said on the Internet. Of course, you know, then, you know, defamation laws haven't really caught up, too. What if somebody says something in it and it ruins your stock and it's just because they're getting revenge? You've got this really challenging balance here between anonymity and freedom and also just all the evil things that can be done. How do we deal with all that? It's true, and there are too many too many questions to to figure out all at once. But I think the general the general message that that I have for people um, is to educate yourself, to be aware of what you're doing. Think again, even just by listening to this program and our conversation, your listeners are becoming more attuned and better aware of the the information economy that they're participants in of the fact that they're, when they go online, they're sharing information a lot of places that they may not realize. Um, it's, it's very important to get these, these things right. Um, it, it, it's our, our, I, again, I think our country is a great, a great country, and I'm very proud of our history and our tradition of civil liberties. We can always improve. But decisions ma- being made now may very well affect our future or our children's future in very serious ways. In the 1920s, um, the Belgian colonists 
in what is now known as Rwanda created an identity card system that they thought was a wonderful administrative system, and I'm sure for lots of things it was. Um, but it's it's just striking to see these these um, cards, folio actually, that, that people carried, because right underneath the picture of the person, it identified their um, tribal affiliation, what tribe they were they're members of. It made perfect sense in the 1920s, and nobody thought any harm would come from it. But 60 years later, being a Hutu or being a Tutsi was the difference between life or death. And so these wonderful administrative and technological systems that we're talking about can be put to these awful, awful purposes. And it's very important to design individual security, protections for the individual's privacy and civil liberties into our technical systems. And that's some of the, that, those are the problems that I focus on so intently. Right. I know in Chapter 21 of your book, you talked that the name of it was Your Papers, Please, and you talked about the, the genocide that occurred. And you talked, I mean, we could even go back to what you were talking about in your book about the Nazis, how they created the registration of the Jews in Holland, for, forcing them to carry papers, and then they had to wear the yellow star. All of that was identification. And you're, you're absolutely right. I don't think people, you know, the younger generation doesn't get it. And sometimes we're told by government and by those in power, hey, you want security? Well, you have to give up some privacy. Is is that true? It's very rarely true. <laughs> now, now we ever since the September 11th attacks, we've sort of dealt with a political reality that we have to give up privacy in order to get security. But let's take the specifics of those attacks. Um, the things that protected us from a future commandeering attack on an airplane, that's the, the idea of someone taking over the controls of an airplane and flying it into something, the most dangerous attack on aviation. The thing that prevented that doesn't have anything to do with any personal information. It's hardening of cockpit doors, and it's the resolve of passengers and crew not to let that happen, because now we realize that it can. In fact, I was, you know, the late morning on September 11th that, that that form of attack was almost entirely foreclosed. Now, there are some other attacks on aviation and things like that, but you stop them by stopping those forms of attack, not by trying to capture what's on the mind and what the activities are of all Americans or all people worldwide who might come to the United States. It's a, it's a fascinating intellectual task to think that we could build a database of who all the terrorists are or who the people are that might become like terrorists. It's a fascinating intellectual task, but it's a disaster, and it's a huge waste of federal dollars that's going on right now. We don't need these kind of identity checks at the airport to be secure. We don't need watch lists to be secure. Those are security boondoggles, frankly. Right. You know, I think about the watch list and I think about this young neighbor that lives down the block and he's a he's a hockey player, you know, and since he was 15, he um, you know, he has a very Irish name. OK, but he's on some watch list that every time he gets on a plane to try and go to a hockey game and, and do what he needs to do, he gets stopped because he's on this watch list. And for years, he hasn't been able to get off this watch list. Well, that's a typical problem, especially for someone who may not have a driver's license or, or maybe too young. Now, it's he's, it's not actually him that's on the watch list, though. I think you probably understand. Right, right. He has a similar name to someone who's on the watch list. That's just how these these programs get Kafkaesque, is that is that names, the, the names we use are pretty common. And in a society like ours, of, of the size of ours, a name like Jim Harper, you'll see again and again and again. There might right. be hundreds or, or maybe even a thousand or more Jim Harpers out there. And so you create these lists, and you go and check all the, all the names against the list, and you end up inconveniencing a lot of people. If they can't prove they're not the person, you have to pull them out of line and give them all kinds of searching and things like that. Well, the fix now at, at the TSA is for the TSA to ask airlines to gather more data about people. And just recently, the TSA started collecting birth date information so that they can try to winnow down who's traveling. Well... I don't think having to submit birth dates for the for the uh, for traveling is appropriate in a free country like ours. Uh, traveling is not a, an explicit explicitly constitutional right, but it's a recognized uh, liberty interest. And if you ever talk to people who've lived in countries where travel is officially restricted, they know how important it is to be free to travel. And so everything we've done at airports since 911 has impinged on this. And much of it has not improved security. It's what uh, a security expert named Bruce Schneier calls security theater. 
it looks like it does something, but it's really not doing very much at all. Yeah. Bruce has been on our show, and he's coming back on with his new book, so we appreciate that. All of wonder, wonderful people. Um, in, in Chapter 20 of your book, and again, I want to say for those who are driving by or just tuned in on the Internet, we are speaking with Jim Harper, who is the author of Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. Uh, Jim is, obviously, as you listen to him, he is brilliant, and he is the director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and you can learn more about him and the wonderful work that the Cato Institute does at cato.org. Jim has also written so many books, uh, so many studies and articles and newsletters, and he's had just, you know, myriad media appearances and great speaking topics, and you can hear why, because he's terrific. Jim, you know, I want to go back to your book. In Chapter 20, you talk about dossiers and surveillance. I don't think most people that I speak to that are ordinary consumers who call us, who are worried about what kind of their privacy and identity theft issues, I don't think they have a clue as to how much information is really being collected about them and shared and profiled. What, do you, what would you say to that? Um, folks, there's a lot of information being collected, <laughs> shared, and profiled. There's, here's, an, here's a fascinating statistic that I learned the other day. You know that cell phones are, are communications devices. They're digital. That means they communicate digitally. And they create records each time that they ping a cell tower. And they might, if your phone is on, even when you're not using it, your phone is probably pinging a cell tower once every few minutes, just so that if you get a call, the the cell system can find you. Well, I learned the other day that that phone companies in the U.S. gather 600 billion data points about American consumers every day. And those data points include your location. And so throughout the day, your phone company knows where you go. And they literally just know by looking at comparing the location of your phone to their map of cell towers, they can see within 60 feet or so um, where you go. That's just one example. Every time you interact with something that's digital, when you use a credit card, obviously when you talk on your cell phone, when you're, uh, when you're, if, you're, if you're driving using one of the, these uh, easy pass type systems, right. all of these things create records. And the society hasn't figured out what to do with all of them yet, and not all of them. They're not all being used to harm you. Some of them are being used for good. But it's important to be aware that we have more and more sensors around us all the time. This is another concept that, that I think is important for people to realize. Anything that takes information and makes it puts it in digital format is a sensor. And once that data is in a digital format, it can be saved. It can be sent somewhere. It can be reused in some other way that you hadn't anticipated. And we're surrounding ourselves with sensors for good reason. There, there's lots of good comes from them. Uh, but they're also collecting information that, that uh, we might not want them to collect. And so there's this huge, I haven't captured it myself, so I can't tell you about any easy answers. I don't know if I ever will. But it's just good to be aware and understand that this is happening. So once in a while, you might want to turn off your cell phone. Uh, once in a while, you want might want to create an anonymous account on a on a on an email, you know, one of these free email sites or whatever, just so you can transact anonymously, protect yourself from from the privacy incursions that are happening through all this digital technology. And even some things can be so insidious. That word again, online, offline as well. And I remember the the lawsuit by Beverly Dennis, a grandmother who had filled out the form. You know, sometimes when you buy something they give you a little consumer form and you fill out what you like and then they say that they're going to give you free coupons or whatever but beverly dennis filled out something so she thought that she was going to get some free coupons and what ended up happening was this company that took the uh, consumers uh, information um, had these prisoners input the data into computers so poor Beverly Dennis, a little grandma, starts getting all these letters from a convicted rapist about how he was going to use ivory soap and other products on her body. And she ended up terrified by this, obviously. And when her attorney actually subpoenaed the documents, what ended up happening is there was about 35 to 40 pages of a profile all about her, what she, where she lives, what she does, 
her whole life was in this profile. And um, that was pretty terrifying. So I, I think people should think about the information that they're sharing, not only online, but offline as well, because that's being put into computers and databases that can come back to haunt them again. That's, that's correct, and it's, it's, it's something we rarely think about. When we fill out a warranty card, uh, using, using a credit card, all these different, all these different things um, may end up in databases. And there are companies that have large marketing databases they're doing their best to try to figure out what we want. Am I, again, I said earlier I was a, a soccer fan. Uh, I'm not going to be interested if you send me information about American football. I'm not going to be interested if you send me information about hurling or curling or any of these other sports. And so they're trying to get information to me that I'm interested in and trying not to send me inf information I'm not interested in. In the process, though, they are creating these large databases of information about people that include public records like uh, home ownership, um, some some employment records, um, anything that you know, it used to be that uh, driver's license records were in there, but there there's a little bit more protection for that nowadays. Anyway, a variety of records um, that give them a good picture of of who we are and what we're interested in. They mean to use that for good. They make huge gross errors, like the case you just described, obviously from time to time, and people are entitled, if they wish, to not want to have any of that information. I. I I wish people luck getting entirely out of um, the information economy we're in, but uh, but it, it's worth trying. Right. Um, we are speaking with Jim Harper, who is the author of Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. Uh, Jim, you know, in Chapter 24, um, you suggest uh, to use an authorization process and, and what do you mean by the, the difference between self-generated identities and certified identities? Well, authorization rather than identification, and by that I mean to ask in any given transaction, what's the relevant credential here? What do you need to know to make this, this transaction go forward? And very often it's not identity. It's some other credential. It's ability to pay. It's being a certain height when you're at the amusement park. There's some fascinating examples of governments adopting systems that use credentials rather than identification. In San Francisco, you're, you may be familiar with the, the medical marijuana law in the city of San Francisco that allows people to, to use marijuana for medicinal purposes. Well, obviously, the federal government disapproves of this rather strongly, and so San Francisco, the public health department, had to come up with a very clever um, system for administering this. And what they do is if you present your proof of your doctor's prescription and your identity information to the San Francisco Department of Public Health, they will issue a medical marijuana card that tells law enforcement in San Francisco you're entitled to have a small amount of marijuana. But it doesn't tell the, that law enforcement uh, who you are, and there's no central repository of information about who in San Francisco uh, is a medical marijuana user because of the risk that federal authorities would come in and grab that database. So what you have there, it's a little bit complex, obviously, but what you have there is a card that's a credential. It's not an identity document. The picture, there is a picture of a person, but it's not a very good one, um, shows that this person is entitled to possess medical marijuana. Some of your listeners may be familiar with the clear card. That's the airport airport uh, card system that allows you to get through, has recently, until recently allowed you to get through the airport a little bit quicker, a sort of concierge service for the security line. Well, the kiosks that clear uses prove that a person is a member of the Transportation Security Administration's Registered Traveler Program, but it doesn't tell the government who you are. And so the, the relevant fact is whether the person is a member of Registered Traveler or not. It's not who the person's identity is. And that's an important, a small but important protection that when you're traveling, the government doesn't necessarily get to know who you are. I understand that CLEAR will be coming back online perhaps at the end of the year. They ran out of funding for their, uh, for their business earlier this year, so we'll see what happens there. Well, I hope you're going to be testifying some more about all these credentials and the, the credential system to kind of dissuade them from going to the real ID and, and this national identifier. We are out of time. Do you believe that? That's amazing. You are just so wonderful. Why don't you uh, give us your website and how we can reach you, and we'll have to have you back again, Jim. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, you, can, you can see all my writings on the Cato website at www.cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. 
I also run a website called privacilla.org. That's privacy, drop the Y, and add Godzilla's tail, .org. <laughs> and if you're interested in federal spending, WashingtonWatch.com keeps track of that for you. Well, we will have you back again, and you stay in touch with us. Thank you so much, Jim Harper. Thank you very much. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week and listen in for an hour to our wonderful VIP guests. Also visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can download podcasts, you can listen to the archived interviews, you can see our upcoming guests, and most importantly, you can even write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 